This is the Monday, September 18, 2017 episode of the History Author Show. Visit our iHeartRadio channel or subscribe on iTunes to enjoy a brand new episode every Monday morning. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore. How I miss those old towns of mine. The sawdust is gone from the floor. Where we harmonize, sweet Adeline, on the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys, oh, New York ain't New York anymore. Hello, true believers, web-slingers, mutants, and comic book fans of all ages. I'm your host, Dean Carianis, and this is the History Author Show on iHeartRadio. This week, our time machine travels back to meet a national treasure who serves as a bridge from the golden age of comics to today's blockbuster multi-film CGI universes. A radioactive arachnid gave us the amazing Spider-Man, and a gamma bomb mishap the Incredible Hulk. But their real origin stories, along with Iron Man, the late great Fantastic Four, and so many others, traces back to the imagination of the legendary Stan Lee and talented authors who brought his ideas to life and infused their own creative juices into their stories just the way that spider bit young Peter Parker. And along the way, their creations have gotten into our national and world bloodstream. Think about it. If you showed a picture of Spider-Man to somebody from any country in the world, chances are they're going to know who he is. He's everywhere. So, since we know Spider-Man's origin story, it's only fair we learn Stan Lee's. Born in New York City in 1922, and growing up during the Great Depression, and rising one catchy thought bubble at a time to be recipient of the National Medal of Arts, Stanley Martin Lieber's life itself is worthy of astonishing tales. Filling in the plot for us is Bob Batchelor, author of Stan Lee, The Man Behind Marvel. Bob is a cultural historian who has written or edited more than two dozen books on popular culture and American literature, including books about John Updike, The Great Gatsby, and Mad Men. He lives in Oxford, Ohio, and teaches at Miami University. You can find our guest at bobbatchelor.com or on Twitter at cultpopculture. Okay, now that we've arrived at the comic book convention, let's join Bob Batchelor and meet Stan Lee, the man behind Marvel. I'm joined via Skype by Bob Batchelor, author of Stan Lee, the man behind Marvel. Thank you so much for taking time to chat with the History Author Show. Thank you so much, Dean. I'm really excited to be here and to talk about such a, an amazing icon of popular culture history. This is really the 21st century equivalent of taking all your old comics out of the attic, dumping them out on the floor with the paneled basement there in the 70s and maybe a little bit of shag carpet. Sometimes you'll get focused maybe on one character, maybe a run of the Fantastic Four. You'd mix together your comics with your friends and see what comics you had that were missing. Maybe you're missing a couple in the 300 series or something like that. You could also just flip to that back page and talk about this Stan Lee guy who is literally a character in the books. He had the column in the back. He had the no prizes. You could flip to that and look up to this guy, which is very much part of his creation. This book, to me, the fact that it moved so fast, even though you had this really broad scope, and the man starts his life in the Great Depression and he's still going here in 2017. It's an amazing life for you to distill down here into Stan Lee, the man behind Marvel, because you're writing not just about an icon, which is a challenge in itself, but somebody who's not up on a pedestal, somebody that readers feel as if they know. They know this smiling guy. They know that big 70s mustache. They 
know Stan the Man. He's like an uncle to them if you're a certain age, to generations of American comic book readers. So we're clinging to these tales of him. We don't want to be told any of the warts sometimes. We want to cling to our stories, even if we find out from Stan Lee himself that he's made them up. Things like, you know, he saw the spider walking for Spider-Man, and he says he felt he had to give people always that little extra story. So I figure that's got to be a challenge for you here in writing about this man, because a lot of times the stories conflict even from your source. So walk us through how you take up this massive challenge, this massive pile of comic books, if you will, and distill it down into a story that's worthy of such a huge pop culture figure. Well, yeah, that's quite a challenge and one that I gladly took on. In my career as a writer and cultural historian, I like to tackle big topics that touch a lot of people's lives. And so as my editor and I were searching searching around for my next subject, after writing a, bi- a short biography of Bob Dylan, after writing a biography of the book The Great Gatsby, writing a, a book about Mad Men, I wanted something big. And Stan Lee just kind of leapt out at us. The challenge, as you rightfully note, is how do you take a life that's almost 95 years long and turn it into a readable book? So what I focused on was using my training as a historian and writer to write a book that is archivally based, that is firmly grounded in the subject matter that's available to us, and try to create as objective and comprehensive a book as I could put together. So I spent a lot of time in the Stan Lee archives in Laramie, Wyoming. I spent time in other archives. And as you mentioned, I spent a lot of time reading comic books. Thankfully, many of them are available in electronic format now. So (laughs) much easier to get and didn't cost me, you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars to get all the old (laughs) comics that I needed. You don't have to worry about spilling your scrunchy cola or anything all over them and making them all sticky or tearing one or the dog running through and stepping on it. But it is an incredible amount of work. It's a big, huge pile. The guy starts his career with a pencil that predates not only both of us, but the comic book medium itself. He's born into a Great Depression where his dad has all these struggles. He sees his parents both scraping by. So how does that young, hungry Stanley Lieber get his start and start on the road to becoming the Stan Lee that we know today? Well, Stan Lee back then when he is Stanley Lieber is born just before the Great Depression. So he really spends all of his formative years in the deepest, darkest economic challenge era of our time. He is instilled with a work ethic that has him picking up part-time jobs and looking for ways to make money to help his family out and to have a couple dimes in his pocket to go see movies right from the very start. So it went as far for young Stanley Lieber, even his mother's forcing him to jump ahead in grades because he's a smart kid, but she wants him out there working because his father has absolutely no prospects. He's a dress cutter in the heart of the Great Depression, and they just didn't need dress cutters anymore. So there was no work, no money. When Stanley graduates from high school, he's 16, 17 years old. He finds out about a job either depending on who you believe, what story, what version you believe. It was either through his cousin, his mother's cousin, or through an ad that he read in the newspaper. It turned out that this publishing job that he uncovered was with a distant relative who owned a publishing company, and that man's name was Martin Goodman. And Martin Goodman would play a huge role in Stanley's life. Though Goodman had no role in hiring him, His distant relative put in a good word, and as a young teenager, Stan Lee finds himself the third worker, really, in what then was Timely Comics. He's hired as an office boy, basically to fill ink wells and run out and get coffee for the two main stars, one being the editor, writer, artist Joe Simon, the other being the incomparable Jack Kirby, then at the beginning of his career. So to be a fly in the wall in that office would have been amazing. You have 16, 17, 18-year-old Stan Lee with the two greats who are only in their early 20s. 
it would have been fantastic to see the creative process engaged in full swing with those three great minds. Yeah, when you're a kid, you enjoy the stories. You enjoy Iron Man. That's something I think in this book, when you pick it up, when you can look at the men behind it and the man behind it and see he's still alive and feel connected to him, you feel like I can enjoy it on a whole new level now. I can see his hand. I could see the man behind it. And the way that he put himself in there, the way he made himself a character and yet did it in such a way where he's your uncle. He's your favorite guy. He's a cool guy. You want to see him. You want to hang out with him. That's really a delicate touch there. That's not something I think that a lot of artists are able to do because we want them often to stay separate from their characters. Vivian Vance, when she was on I Love Lucy, she would get mad she couldn't go out with her husband because people would glare at her from other tables and think she was cheating on Fred. And they, they just <laughs> couldn't separate the idea that she played this part. By the same token, a lot of artists come to hate their characters. For instance, the late Fred Gwynn, a lot of New Yorkers have stories that when they would say something to him about Herman Munster, hey, Herman, he would he would get really mad. And so he, he just didn't want to be remembered for that. He hated being typecast. So to be able to create this persona and have it last through so many decades, think about how long the Great Depression is. It's, it's almost 100 years ago that we're talking about. And yet he's able to still live his life to, in such a way that he's always reinventing, always pushing forward. Yet something that surprised me was when he starts out, comics are not really respectable. It's something that he gets frustrated with time and time again. Did that surprise you as you're writing Stan Lee, the man behind Marvel? Yeah, I think there's so many myths about Stan Lee, some that he created, some that he kind of picked up along the way as the really the voice of the comic book industry as it grew into a big part of mainstream popular culture. I was surprised at his personal frustration. That was one of the real telling points that I think um, I really uh, worked hard to uncover and think about and how to present to the reader, because I think it will be completely foreign to a lot of readers who see him as the gregarious uh, Marvel icon or the constant um, cameo appearance in the films where he's always happy, always smiling. I wanted to show that Stan Lee is a real live human being. And that's why I wanted the book to be archivally driven and research-based rather than interview-based where, you know, some people over those decades, their memories shift, their alliances shift. They're not always telling the interviewer the right kind of, um, you know, it's a version of reality rather than, than what reality actually may have been. I think that Stan Lee comes across in the book as a real human being. And there are parts of his life that I don't think people give him enough credit for, like the fact that he's really an early innovator in the magazine industry. I mean, he really is a one-man show at Marvel and is responsible for important business decisions. He's in He's really responsible for the, lots of the early merchandising, trying to get Marvel to branch out into multimedia areas, all while writing a lot, staying in front of the readers, and breaking that fourth wall that gave people the feeling that this was Uncle Stan in big New York City, and we better keep up with what he has to say, because what he has to say is really important and we need to be part of that. We're talking about Uncle Stan and talking about this way that readers felt about him as kids, but it wasn't in a way that he was talking down to kids. You think of all those great characters, Captain Kangaroo, all these guys that you'd have in the 60s and 70s. And sometimes it was just adults being goofballs, not to pick on the late Fred Gwynn, but you know, that kind of thing where he was just like, oh, this is this is a check that I'm taking. And OK, I have to nod and act a little bit silly, but it's not serious. Stan Lee, even though he is frustrated with the limitations of the early pulp magazines, he's out there trying to make it better. He's giving his all, even though he's a little bit frustrated with the limitations of it, things like censorship and the like. And he also chafes at the fact that people will come right up to him and tell him that they think it's terrible. Oh, gosh, how, how could you possibly do that? That sounds like the worst job in the world. Well, here you have kids saying that must be the greatest job in the world because you have Spider-Man in your office every day. You're drawing, you're having fun. 
But then you have things like this story you tell in Stan Lee, the man behind Marvel, about him going on the Dick Cavett show. And I wanted you to tell that story because that's something there where it's a few things. It's the fact that they don't take him seriously and also that they don't really do their homework. So that kind of leads to some of those arguments later on or some of the misconceptions maybe people have about the amount of credit that they take because they treat him like he's just the creator. They never think of co-creator. They never ask him about the other things. They almost have him on there as a circus act. So tell that story about Dick Cavett. Yeah, Stan Lee goes on the Dick Cavett show and if you think back, it had to be a huge um, honor for him. He's getting the recognition. Um, Marvel is becoming part of the mainstream based off the popularity of the superheroes. But when he goes on Dick Cavett, Cavett kind of looks down his nose at him. And he had a guest on, a, a comedian that often went on the Dick Cavett show named Pat McCormick. And they kind of just took turns taking pot shots at Stan Lee the entire program. So on one hand, you had adults who looked down at people who worked in the comic book industry, but culturally, young people are demonstrating with their, with their money and with sales how important comic books are to them and their evolving worldview. So comic books and superheroes are becoming a way that young people define themselves in the world they live in. But for Stan Lee, who at the time is a 40-year-old man, 40-plus years old man, it's very embarrassing to take the constant criticism of working in the comic book industry. And that drove a lot of the frustration for him as an individual because he took pride in, the, in what he created. He took pride in what Marvel had done, and uh, it was looked down upon because – it was a different era back then, and I, I hope that's what readers take away from Stan Lee, the man behind Marvel. The work that I did to present the culture of the different eras in which Stan Lee lived in and how that had consequence for what he was doing and trying to achieve at Marvel. On the other hand, Cavett and other journalists and journalist types, media influencers, they would bring Stan Lee on and they would only have a couple minutes or it would be one interview in a magazine or, or a newspaper. Journalists take shortcuts. And so people would introduce Stan Lee as, oh, this is Stan Lee. He runs Marvel Comics. He's the creator of Spider-Man, the Hulk, things like this. And from the person's being interviewed perspective, as you and, and I both know very well, you don't want to show up the interviewer by saying, oh, well, no, wait, um, I was really just the co-creator, or I don't actually run Marvel Comics, I'm just the editor-in-chief and the art director. So over the years, when we only have these kind of sources to look back on, that developed into some animosity with the way the artists were portrayed versus the way that Lee was portrayed and who deserved credit for creating the characters. That would lead to a lot of conflict over the years, and particularly now when we look at comic books completely differently as an art form, as a collector's item, back then these were just pieces of paper to be moved. They were just another commodity to get off the shelf, to get uh, the coffers filled at uh, Marvel and, and in, the in the comic book uh, business. They, they, weren't, they weren't held up on a pedestal like we put them up now. And can you imagine back in those days walking up to Stan Lee, if you had one of the comic book methods there to be able to go back and in the past and tell him someday you will be alive to see classes taught, whole degrees given, whole industries around comic books, not, not to mention these movies that we've all seen recently coming out every few months. That was nothing like it then. This was something... Even Stan Lee, this was a surprise to me reading Stan Lee, the man behind Marvel. He keeps thinking it's going to end. He keeps thinking that Martin Goodman, his distant cousin, is just going to say, forget the comics. Let's just move on to the next thing. It really is just trying to crank out a product, get something on the shelf, and hoping it'll catch. And meanwhile, you have this very sympathetic man here at the center of it that's your subject Stan Lee trying to do something positive, always giving it his all, working super hard, developing this so-called Marvel method. 
And then he goes out there and he tries to go and promote his ideas here on Dick Cavett. You could see, knowing how big shows like that were back then, only three networks, everybody. So uh, there's only so many shows like that. And they hear him introduced as the creator. They're busting their asses. You're talking about Jack the King Kirby. Here's a guy who has great skill, great talent. Yeah, And Joe Simon, they're feeling a little marginalized. They already have so much stress and pressure on them. And I think what comes through in Stan Lee here is he's a man who... Everything he does is for this greater ideal that he has. Everything he does is for the comics, for the characters, and for the kids, as cliche as that sounds. He really cares about those readers. It's not just something where he wants to capture their dime, as Paul Simon sang. Yeah, I think that Stan Lee, um, if you've been lucky enough to meet him, you, you, you can feel his warmth. You can feel it radiate off him from a mile away. I've met a lot of celebrities, and... Stan Lee does not give you that false front or that fake feeling. This is a guy who won his fame and won his iconic status through the work that he did, almost like an athlete who works his way up through the minor leagues and, you know, eventually becomes the MVP superstar kind of player. I think that's a little bit akin to the way that Lee worked his way up through the minors. Now, it took a lot of people, just like it takes a lot of people to develop a star shortstop or a star pitcher. It took a lot of people and a lot of people around Lee to get him to that superstar level, but he brought a lot of people with him. And people who are anti-Lee think that he was just some P.T. Barnum type trying to get famous himself. Mm. But I would argue that he was really trying to raise the boat of the entire industry because in the 20 years that he had worked prior to the superhero craze in the comic book industry, he had watched many fads come and go. And in fact, the mid-1950s, mid to late 1950s, when Congress starts investigating comic books, the industry almost collapses in total. So Lee and these other artists, back then, they weren't looking at this as great works of art. They were trying to keep their jobs. They were trying to raise families. They were trying to live their version of the American dream. They just happened to be writers and artists. It's almost as if they caught this zeitgeist out of the blue but it was built on their hard work. So it's an interesting duality that I think readers are going to find really fascinating in the book. So much of the culture, you could look at things like the rise of television and movies. You could look at things like the rise of the number of baby boom college students. I mean, all these forces are coming together and they had to come together just at the right time for Lee and Kirby and Marvel to catch this wave to become what we see today. And he almost creates it out of desperation. In fact, that may be the phrase that you use in the book. He's chafing against all these restraints. He's chafing against the fact that nobody really seems to care about it. They just want you to put the pencil to the paper, kid, and just do it. Crank it out. Crank it out. And push, push, push is a, is a line in the old Twilight Zone, one of the episodes, the Stop at Willoughby episode. And the guy just goes crazy from it. I just picture him like that, being pushed, and he says, you know, if I'm going to go out, I'm going to do a character my way. And that's how he comes up with Spider-Man. And you look at Spider-Man as a relatable character, three-dimensional. He has family problems. He has a job he has to keep. He has school challenges. He has a bully at school, which is a fantastic way to make a superhero have some conflict because he can't use his powers here against Flash Johnson in the in the in school, you know. So this is all real stuff. And I look at Spider-Man here as I read Stan Lee, the man behind Marvel, and I said, this is why that character endures, whereas Superman, as we've gotten a little bit more cynical over the years and try to make these characters appeal to adults, it's really hard for him. He's invulnerable. He's perfect. He's never upset, really. He can never lose. He can never die. There's nothing really at stake. And so it's been really hard to make him relatable, whereas from that first comic, kids connect with Stanley's character to the point where Martin Goodman, who had told him no, because everybody hates spiders, comes in and says, I told you that would be a great idea. It's, it's so fast that everyone connects with Spider-Man, and they still do. Yeah. Marvel had gotten a big enough boost with Fantastic Four 
that Stan Lee thought selling Spider-Man to Martin Goodman, the idea of Spider-Man, was going to be an easy sell. But, as you mentioned, Goodman thought people hate spiders, they hate teenagers, they don't want teens as anything more than sidekicks. Goodman's problem back then was that he saw the comic book audience as nothing more than kids under the age of 10 and imbecilic adults. And that's a real challenge. Lee's great insight is that if they create comic books that are interesting and have interesting characters who have human traits, that they can expand that audience exponentially. And so when Lee takes a chance and directly goes against Goodman's decision not to have Spider-Man as a standalone comic, it really changes everything for Marvel because Lee is taking a chance and a prayer. And if it's not successful, he could lose his job. Potentially the company could suffer some financial bad timings. And so Lee takes this chance. They bring out this character. They give the character human traits, a human voice. And I think that readers at the time, just like we do today, we all know somebody from high school that was like Spider-Man, more realistically like Peter Parker, somebody who was a little nerdy, somebody maybe was getting the short end of the stick, somebody who was a little bullied. Maybe for some of us, we were even had some of those traits, so we can really identify with this kid. And I think that the popularity of the Spider-Man films over time and even you know the reboots that they, they continue to do shows the interest that we have for this character across the decades. I mean, August was the 55th year anniversary of Spider-Man being introduced. So, you know, I don't think many people realize that Spider-Man's a 55-year-old character, but he <laughs> but he is if he if he he'd even be much older if he aged in natural years. But to us, he's that never-ending, optimistic, smart-alecky teenager, but he's got a good heart and a good soul and he uses his power for good after some real tragedy. And this is the kind of thing we can imagine if we were given these kind of otherworldly powers, how would we act? And we like to think we would act like Spider-Man. It's nice too, that we look at it and say, that's something timeless, that the teen, all the angst, no matter how much we change, no matter how much we have technology that leaps ahead, no matter how much society changes and America changes, we can all relate to him. And people around the world now have come to embrace Spider-Man. So it's even a bigger universal human thing. And as you called it, zeitgeist, it's a feeling of people that are that age. We can all look at him and smile and relate to that. You go through also Stan Lee's life here in Stan Lee, the man behind Marvel. There were many of pictures from what you credited, the University of Wyoming. This is the quintessential New Yorker. How did so much of your research end up being out in Wyoming, of all places? Uh, that's a great story. The University of Wyoming opened a museum and archival repository called the American Heritage Center. And they had a really enterprising director. And he must have had a really strong budget because he he realized how important that popular culture had become and how important it was going to be. And so he would take these trips to New York City. Stan Lee would meet with him and he kept badgering Lee to give him his archives and donate the archives. They were going to have this popular culture center out there in Laramie, Wyoming. And eventually Lee gave in. And so hundreds of boxes were shipped out to Laramie, Wyoming old videotapes, old cassettes, tons of pictures. So this place that's really uh, kind of, depending on your viewpoint, seems like the end of the world. Laramie is a, is a small town and uh, fairly desolate. It's a big University of Wyoming town, and the archives end up there, and it's a wonderful facility. It's first rate. The staff there is amazing. And the treasures in that archive are priceless. Stan Lee is left-handed, and he, his writing is really poor. And over his career, he likes to take notes on these little two-inch by three-inch wire-bound notebook pages. And so there would be 
folders and I would, I would pull out folders and open them up and they've all been archivally processed and there'd just be hundreds of these little stacks of papers in there. And you could almost feel Lee's energy as he's writing out. He'd have things, he'd have new superhero ideas right along with, you know, the limos coming at three and I've got to meet this producer for lunch. And, <laughs> you know, it's so it's, uh, it was Lee's way of keeping his really busy life under some kind of control. And that trip that I made to Laramie was really the foundation of this book because it gives you a glimpse into Lee's total existence, not just as a writer like we think of writers today, sitting lonely at a typewriter computer, banging out their script or banging out their story, but really his life as an editor, as an art director, as chief writer, as publicity man, as marketer, as merchandiser, all these roles that Lee had to embody in one really overworked individual. The man behind Marvel. It's literally your subhead writes itself. That's what he is. Anything that needed to be done when they needed somebody to go out there and make comics respectable, be a face for it. He just put on that smile, which came so naturally. He goes out there and goes on Dick Cavett. You think of that kind of thing. You know, today, everybody's raised in front of a camera. Here's a kid, a little bit shy, insecure, says Peter Parker's his most personal character. So think about that. And he's called to be on this show, knowing what Dick Cavett is like. He's not like Johnny Carson, who would work with you. Now, having read Steve Martin's biography, which is a great one, Born Standing Up, he talks a lot about meeting various people. And he says, Johnny was the comic's best friend. And I look at Stan Lee going on Dick Cavett, and he's not going to get any help there, but he's going to do it because he knows that out there, there are kids that want to see him. There are people that want to, and he's going to give his side of comics. He just did whatever had to be done. And I think that also led to maybe some of the misconceptions about him that he was a glory hound. I'm sure he wishes there was somebody else to do it, would do it sometimes. He has a hard time hiring people. He turns down a promotion at one point in Stan Lee, the man behind Marvel, because he just can't do that. He realizes the supervisory president type positions is not for him. He's not meant to be there in a suit in a board meeting. And when he strikes out on his own, same thing. So that's something about him very much. He goes from this guy who is in this, he's going to make it work if he's going to do it. He always hopes he's going to go write that great American novel, but that doesn't mean he's going to do half a job when he's at Marvel. He's going to try to make this a success where he is because he does have that Great Depression memory nipping at his heels his whole life. Yeah, I think that that's an important point that a lot of people who have written about Stan Lee have left on the table. I know people from that era. I have family members that I was really close to who grew up in that era. And, you know, you can't overgeneralize, but as a historian, you can certainly look at the way people operate generally, generationally and get a sense of what makes them tick. There are a lot of similarities, in fact, between the way that John Updike thought and worked and the way that Stan Lee thought and worked. And so for me, having written a biography of John Updike, who I consider one of the very handful of the greatest American writers to ever live, this gave me insight into Stan Lee and, and the things that made him tick as a human being, which I could then bring out in this book. That Great Depression era work ethic and that desire to be needed and to feel like you're making a contribution that drove a lot of creative icons like Updike, like Stan Lee. I think it drove Norman Mailer, some of the other greats that we would recognize who grew up in and around that Great Depression era. And he serves in World War II. He takes his talents there. Sounds like a strange way to put it to go for a war, but he takes his talents for art there, makes that iconic VD poster. And so these are some of the things you have in the book that really makes you realize this guy is almost like a Highlander to mix our genres here, <laughs> where he's he's just so long-lived, but also producing for so long. For instance, when David McCullough said in when he was writing his John Adams biography, I couldn't say that he left the White House and then lived for 20 years, nothing happened, and he died. Then he started researching, and he said, whoa, some really interesting things did happen in his life. And But his experience in the war, always learning, always trying, you have some funny anecdotes in there. He's really somebody that 
tries so many different things and he's always trying to push himself forward. I found it really inspiring. I, I kind of knew what I was going to find. I wasn't sure what it was going to be. I had an open mind, but it's nice to find somebody here in Stan Lee, the man behind Marvel, that it doesn't disappoint you. Yeah, what really surprised me, I feel almost like you you do there. I has spent my life reading Marvel comics. And it goes back to me to a very personal time. I taught myself to read as a young child so that I could read Marvel comics. I had an uncle that gave me a, a stack of comics. I couldn't read them and I wanted to. And so I think the combination of Marvel comics and the electric company is what forced my hand. And it's launched a great love affair with writing and reading that's lasted my entire life. What amazed me, even though I knew a lot of Stan Lee's story, is that he is such a great example of the American dream come true. I mean, there is almost lockstep every moment of his life through hard work, through dedication, and a little bit of insight and a little bit of luck and, and some other things that usually are rolled into the great American story, Stan Lee comes out ahead. And that for me was a tremendous outcome of the book because Stan Lee is heroic in many respects and his storytelling ability and his storytelling ability combined with the great artists that he had on his staff led to this amazing moment in time that we're living through in which the superhero narrative defines every aspect of our lives. And so if you look at the way commercials are created, novels are written, other films are made, the superhero influence is felt throughout popular culture around the world. So I end the book saying, you know, Stan Lee wanted to write the great American novel, but he ended up doing so much more. He created the narrative of modern world. I'm trading speech balloons with Bob Batchelor about his book. You like that? That's good, right? <laughs> that is awesome. Yeah. <laughs> well, when you're talking about Stan Lee, I figure you can you have to go right to that line of too many puns, right? Yep. It's really hard to outdo him. I think we learn that as writers if you if it's done with love. So yeah, we're trading speech balloons, I thought was a fun way to say it. And by the way, he invents the thought balloon. That's one of his innovations there. Let us see what people are thinking inside our characters. Stan Lee is a founding father of comics. Great guy to talk about. Great guy to read about here in Stan Lee, the man behind Marvel. You can find our guest at BobBachelor.com or on Twitter at Cult Pop Culture. Booklist writes of his book, quote, What made Lee's creations special was his insistence on giving them recognizable human traits and flaws. These weren't idealized superheroes, but real people with special abilities. This is a solidly researched and written biography of Lee, who is in his mid-90s now. And they go on to call Stan Lee the man behind Marvel, a hugely entertaining story, and the author tells it well. So I hope you're not wearing headphones because, you know, your, your head rightfully <laughs> will swell from such compliments. But those human traits really are so important. We spoke about them a little. Tony Stark is an alcoholic. The Hulk's anger stems from abuse as a child. There's really endless things that we can dig into here and learn about these characters that keeps us plucking down our quarters and then our 50 cents and then our eventually dollar 95 and you know they get a little bit out of our price range this is that's not on stan lee's watch but always wanting to go back find out what happens next that same soap opera impulse that keeps people coming back there only with a lot more to chew on what fresh insights will your readers gain into stan lee and how he managed this creative leap to the more relatable characters because he has to not only fight that but Comic books all have great villains. They need somebody. Maybe they're just misguided or maybe they're outright evil. But he has to fight those in the form of government censors and the like. So how does he make that leap? How does he push us to something that, as you said just a moment ago, now we it's ubiquitous. We expect that in every character we read about. We expect them to have an inner story and some conflict. Yeah, I think that Stan had a crystal ball and he and Kirby and Ditko and the other artists were able to tap into that a little bit to create this kind of angst-ridden character across many different um, characters themselves, from Thor with his handicapped 
alter ego Don Blake, you know, the doctor who has um, some physical limitations and you have Spider-Man obviously as a odd teen who doesn't quite fit in. I think for a lot of people, comic books to them as they read them or read them growing up, you're either a words person or an images person. And I think people... Maybe it's the same way people like singers versus bands. You know, I'm a huge Pearl Jam fan because I love Eddie Vedder's voice. I'm not so sure that I would like Pearl Jam if Eddie Vedder weren't fronting the band. And so me, for me as a reader, Stan Lee, as a, for me as a kid especially, Stan Lee's voice was Marvel Comics. And I enjoyed the imagery but for me, it was the words. It was the snappy dialogue. It was the embodiment of how Peter Parker felt when Flash Thompson was bullying him or that he was being shunned by the popular kids. And so I think readers, maybe when they think about that contextually in an era where there's no internet, movies are, are much less pervasive. There aren't 400 channels all showing reruns of Point Break or Roadhouse or something. Roadhouse. <laughs> this is a different <laughs> era. It's a different era. And so too. the context in which Stan Lee and his team are working is important. And I think that that's an insight that readers will gain in this. But it's not overpowering. I mean, I think that the biography aspects and the cultural aspects come together to create a fuller picture. And the picture can't be complete if you don't give a little bit of due to both sides of that equation. And so in my mind, Stan Lee as the word man is as important as Kirby, the image man, or Ditko, the image and plot, and you know all the, the various arguments that people use for determining who they love in the creation of these characters. My thinking is they're co-creators. We can't go back in time. There's little evidence to suggest one side more than the other. It's important to think about, but it really is a co-creation aspect that led to these angst-ridden, relatable characters that we see in everything from the latest film to all the time I think of Dexter from the Showtime show Dexter. He'd have been a perfect Marvel. He could have been a Stan Lee creation. The voice and the characteristics, and I see that as, as kind of a, I mean, even maybe even Don Draper from Mad Men, if he were a little more superhuman, could have been a Marvel character. And I think it's important to remember, and this is something I picked up here from Stan Lee, the man behind Marvel, without realizing it. But as I'm hearing you retell that, at the time, Jack Kirby, Stan Lee, they're not thinking, hey, we're creating some new icon that's going to change the world. They're not funded by some million-dollar government grant that says, okay, we want you to create a really great superhero to send the following messages. That stuff comes later, and he wants them to do good, and the idea of with great power comes great responsibility, all that. But they're just doing a job, and when you think of how much stuff you are cranking out here in the early days of comics— It'd be easy just to forget who is doing what. But here in San Lee, you give full credit. You talk about how well they work together. You talk about how in the Fantastic Four, Kirby's drawings pop off the page. It makes users, because we do have the internet today, want to go back and be able to look those up and say, wow, I, those images are in your head, even though if you're a word person like yourself and like I am, I think of the words and all the alliteration. And, and in fact, I'm wondering if that was a little subconscious thing there. I assume your full name is Robert. You decided to go with <laughs> Bob Batchelor. Why? Because that's a perfect name. You could have been a Stanley character. He would he would like that. I'm sure that's that kind of thing. Fantastic Four, Bruce Banner, which was changed to David for the TV show, and an endless source of discussion and debate for people online. They weren't thinking that at the time that they were creating that, and yet it becomes a big thing. And then it's one of those where success has a million fathers. So I found that was very 
fairly handled there and very well because I think many readers naturally, partially because of comic books, they want to be able to have a Magneto and a Professor Xavier, and they want to root for one or the other. They want to have two guys fighting. And this is much more complex, which maybe is fitting to the characters that they created, where there's not a good guy and a bad guy. There's just a human story of two men, two artists, one with words, one with the drawings, who both contributed hugely we couldn't have any of these things without the other in those comics so i think that that was really a bold choice for you to make there may not seem like it to people that are listening or reading stan lee the man behind marvel but i know for myself people always want you to pick one or the other they always want to say to you well here in the new york city area giants or jets yankees or mets people have to choose well the the mets and jets make it pretty easy right to choose the giants and yankees (laughs) most years but (laughs) you don't have to hate the other team you don't have to be oh they're always wrong they always stink they're new york and you can have a little fun with that but i think here as adults i hope people will pick up Stan Lee, the man behind Marvel, and give that a chance and realize this was a nuanced story between those two really talented men working under tremendous pressure to pump things out in this Marvel method. Yeah, and I think that there's such a bigger point to be said about all this. It's that what these guys were producing, they had no idea how big it would become. And now it is a global pop culture phenomenon. And how often do we get that (laughs) in our lifetimes, in our cultural history? You know, Marvel and what Marvel was able to do is akin to the Beatles or Elvis or Dylan or insert whatever discipline that you want, whatever industry. This is Babe Ruth and Barry Bonds and Nolan Ryan all rolled into one. I mean, this is the biggest thing going. And to try to pull it apart over creation without knowing all the other pieces makes it almost impossible. What we should be relishing in and and thinking about is how did Marvel come to rule the pop culture universe? And I think that doesn't happen without all these forces coming together. Like any industry, it never stops with the creator. You know, Bob Dylan wouldn't be as popular if he didn't have all of Columbia Records pulling for him and marketing him. Dan Brown would have never had the Da Vinci Code if his publisher wouldn't have sent out 2,000 advance review copies of the book. So there's always facets of the creative industry that as adults we see. We Maybe we don't recognize that as kids, but we're just caught up in the characters. We know the name Stan Lee. It's fantastic. But now, looking back on a man and his life, we can see how this embodiment of the American dream really does play a central role in understanding not only Lee, but Marvel comic books and how this progressed to the point where Marvel really rules popular culture. And he also, in addition to the Great Depression, World War II, things like paper being rationed during the war, all these things he has to fight through and overcome, he remains a driving force even by the late 70s when, as you write, fans faced this dreaded moment where merchandising became more important to Marvel than the comics themselves, than their beloved characters, than their Spider-Man, you know? So then we face this string of embarrassing projects because the special effects just aren't there yet. 1977's Spider-Man and 1990's Captain America. I watched trailers on YouTube the other day and tweeted them out at History Dean. And Mm -hmm. those are just, they're just an insult. (laughs) is the word that springs to mind, you know? Remarkably bad. Yeah. If you made an effort to make a really bad movie, you couldn't make it that bad. And it was really terrible and i think if you spent here by this point he spent 30 years on with these characters to see that and think i remember thinking as a kid watching that i could tell it was bad even though i was only whatever i'm born in 1969 so i'm seven eight years old and i'm watching and i'm saying gosh spider-man has this big tense moment and then they just would drain all the they just didn't get it and i didn't think that they would ever get it and i had many comic book fan friends and we would 
sit around from time to time. We talk comics and that was sort of our little corner of the world and say, I don't think they'll ever get it right. I don't think they'll ever be allowed to because it's so hard and people don't get it. They still have that condescending attitude. Stan Lee sticks with these characters through all of that. And I wanted you to talk a little bit about the role that he plays. And I realize we talked a lot about his early life. I hope people will pick up the book if they're interested in more because there's so much more to, to his life. We can only get to so much here. But I did want to touch on that because those movies were just so bad. And then you get something like the Avengers or Captain America, and it's just really the right tone. So what role did Stan Lee play in that? Well, I think Stan Lee, he's leading the charge to get Hollywood to make the right kind of Marvel movies. But the challenge is we've all seen great books that become really horrific movies. Once Hollywood gets the rights to something, you can basically change it however they want. And so Stan Lee is out in Hollywood pushing for producers and writers and others to take comic book superheroes seriously. But many of the TV executives, they would love to meet with Stan Lee because by the 70s, he's globally famous. They can't wait to meet this guy, but they don't want him on set. They don't want him working daily on these things because they have their own agendas. And so Lee keeps going and like a maniac, just keeps pushing and pushing until enough people who grew up on comic books and understood the Marvel voice moved up into positions in Hollywood production houses that they could then make realistic films. And so it wasn't until, say, Star Wars in the mid-70s, the Superman movie with Christopher Reeve in the late 70s, that Hollywood understood that they could make money from superheroes. And if anybody's under the illusion that Hollywood runs on anything but money, please, you know, let me disavow you of that, <laughs> because Hollywood is about nothing more than making money. So once they realized that money could be made, suddenly Marvel became really popular. It still took another 15 years for them to make a decent Marvel film. And there are all these factors that come together here that we've spoken about. There's more channels, and even that in and of itself is sort of a data reference that we all use and say, well, they have 400 channels today. People that are comic book age today never even think in terms of channels. They just, everything's on whenever they want it to be on. There's no, there's no even people saying what's on anymore because whatever you want to be on is on. Also, the production costs here are different. You're able to make a film. You're able to make it with all the technology that we have at our disposal. And you think back to the early days of Marvel and saying, well, just crank out whatever Martin Goodman is saying. Just just get them to do something. There was a lot of films and TV shows in the 70s like that for kids, where because there weren't many channels, there weren't many options, because TV, color TV, is still relatively new then, they would throw anything on TV. You know, you think of Sid and Marty Croft. You think of Hanna-Barbera. You know, they yep. cranked out just a lot of real schlock, and you watched it because it was Saturday morning, and it's just what you did. And there's not even Saturday morning cartoons anymore. So kids were really able to vote with that dime, as you mentioned here in Stan Lee, the man behind Marvel. They voted with their nickels and dimes. And that was something that with the movies here, you make a good movie, you make Iron Man, you put a, a talented actor in there in Robert Downey Jr. And you get somebody who makes it a real story. You get a really good team there. You, you And that's what they learned. They learned, hey, we can make more money if we do a good movie than if we just throw something up there with the Spider-Man name. If we just have the, that dismal Fantastic Four movie, for instance, that they happen to have the rights to and they made that terrible VHS movie just to yeah. try to yep. keep the rights to it. You know, They realized, hey, we can make something good and it will be not just a film, not just maybe break even, not something we throw on for Saturday morning for kids to watch as a little bit of filler. They realize that they could make it and make money by making something good and make this Stan Lee guy happy, which after half a century of him looking over their shoulders, it probably made him feel a little bit at peace. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that, you know, the cameos are part of that. I've been in theaters. I, most of us have been in theaters when Stan Lee comes on in a cameo. You know, the place erupts in raucous laughter and clapping, and people are waiting the entire film to see Stan Lee. And 
that is kind of an homage to his role in terms of keeping the ball in the playing field for Marvel and Marvel films until the technology could catch up, until the a new form of leadership took over Hollywood and people started realizing that with this confluence of technology and a different kind of audience and some great actors who were willing to go against stereotype, that Marvel could actually be something really, really fantastic. And so that's where we're at now. And Lee didn't do all the work, certainly, but in the dark days of the 70s, he kept pushing. He was able to have some small successes like The Incredible Hulk with Lou Ferrigno. That was a huge hit. He was able to push the envelope, keep it going. You know, the animation series did really well. So he had enough successes and people knew that a generation that grew up reading the comic books would ultimately change the way people perceived Marvel in other forms of multimedia. I'm so glad that you mentioned the Incredible Hulk because I was picturing Bruce Banner listening and <laughs> getting progressively angrier and angrier because we hadn't mentioned him yet. You know, and uh, that's not what you want to do. You wouldn't like him when he's angry, of course. No, so. no not at all. <laughs> <laughs> so good. Yes, we love the Hulk. Hulk, we're mentioning you. So you write in Stan Lee, the man behind Marvel, quote, Lee's longevity is part of his legend. His tenacity in the early and mid-2000s revealed the depths of his character. Time and again, this guy pushes forward, Stanley. He has that Depression-era poverty nipping at his heels. I wonder how you avoided getting buried. We talked about so much how long his life was, how big his legend is here. How did you manage to pare the book down? I just want to squeeze that in because I know it was a real challenge for you because the book could easily have been two volumes, never mind this tight book. That was certainly a challenge, but almost a fun challenge as a writer to try to craft a life and a life as long lived. Lee will be 95 at the end of the year into a short narrative. On one hand, you have the really tactical. What many readers might not understand is that unless you're David McCullough or Stephen King, your publisher gives you a word count and you can only write to that word count. And if you go over, you're going to have to rework a lot. You don't have a lot of leeway. My publisher and I agreed that we wanted a narrative that would move quickly, that would be fast-paced. So I worked really hard on the writing itself to present a narrative that fans could enjoy. And what I didn't want is a book that just scholars or just comic book hardcore fanboys would enjoy. I wanted to write the book that the average fan would find out something new about Stan Lee and in a very interesting way. I had done a lot of research talking to Marvel fans and self-professed Stan Lee fans. What I found is that often they didn't know that much about Lee. I would ask people flat out, so tell me what you've ever read about Stan Lee. And they'd be like, I just, I love Stan Lee. And so I wanted to write a book for those kind of fans who would enjoy finding out the real nature of this person and how important he is to the pop culture and the actual broad culture globally of the era in which he lived. So the writing style itself, beyond just the tactical word limit, was important to me because I want the average fan. I want teenagers. I want people my age. I want upcoming fans who didn't grow up with Stan's soapbox to see this book as an opportunity to really deep dive into a fascinating life, but in a way that's going to really keep them on the edge of their seat. Well, Bob Batchelor, I appreciate you going through all of those notepads, all of those comic books. You write in your acknowledgments, I do not remember a time without Stan Lee. I think that speaks for generations of people here talking about a writer and an artist here in his own right. Incredible career here that spanned almost a century now. He's, the man is still going. I hope future fans will be able to pick up the book when they are not fortunate enough to have Stan Lee in their world. I want to give you a no prize for joining me today by <laughs> way of you. thanks and folks who don't read comics will just have to pick up the book even if you're not a comic book fan i think you'll just love reading about this man who doesn't love somebody who comes from that hard scrabble new york city 
in World War II and in the Great Depression and manages to make good and literally change the world. I wish you the best of luck in the book. And as they used to say in Stan Lee's early days, I'll see you in the funny papers. Well, thank you. I, it's been my great pleasure to speak with you tonight. Again, the book is Stan Lee, The Man Behind Marvel. As always, you can find the Amazon link to purchase your copy at historyauthor.com. And we hope you will click through there, or even navigate using the Amazon banner on our homepage the next time you purchase anything from Amazon. Say you're going to purchase some of that great Marvel merchandise, you're going to get Maybe some sheets and a pillowcase with Spider-Man on it. Come on, you have those kind of things hidden in your closet, don't you, from when you were a kid. Maybe you want to pass them down to your kids someday. Well, you go to HistoryAuthor.com first. We take it Amazon and Amazon.com. Gives us a small portion of every dollar you spend at no additional charge in your shopping cart. And it helps us buy some of the protective things we need around the studio in case the Hellfire Club shows up. Yes, for just those few extra clicks, Forge from the X-Men who's filling in this week can make sure he keeps our time machine humming like usual. I had a lot of fun with this book and with this interview, so I want to give Bob Batchelor some of those bold type thank yous and a big exclamation point in the speech bubble here. He joined us, he gave us his time, and he gave us Stan Lee, the man, the legend, you can find our guest at bobbachelor.com or on Twitter at Cult Pop Culture. And while you're at it, let us know what you think of the book and the interview and my comic book puns on Twitter at History Dean or Facebook.com slash History Author. That's it for this comic book installment of the History Author Show. I hope you'll join us for next Monday's all-new interview right here on iHeartRadio. And if you're an iTunes subscriber, please take a minute to leave us a review. Well, until our next trip into the past together, thanks so much for time traveling with us today, true believers. And to quote Stan Lee and the New York State motto, Excelsior. We still call it Broadway, but what's in a name? Take it from Georgie, it isn't the same. On the east side, west side, things ain't like before.